All right, Alexander, we have got to do a Ukraine update. We have uh, this morning, we had a lot of missile attacks throughout Ukraine. Uh, they knocked out just about everything, it seems, even though I'm sure we're going to see the Zelensky regime say that they shot down all the missiles. The fact of the matter is, is that we're getting reports of metros stopped, uh, more blackouts. One week on, one week off. This has become the same routine every week. And we have the big uh, economist uh, story interview, actually, with uh, the commander of the Ukraine Armed Forces, uh, General Zeluzhny. And that was an interesting uh, interview that he gave with the economist. And we have, uh, I would say, Marinka Bakhmut, still ongoing. Marinka, the last I heard, 80% of, of this town has been, uh, has been taken by the Russians and Bakhmut. Uh, slow advancements. But uh, it looks like um, even, the, even though the Collective West is saying this is not a significant city or town, depending on what you want to call it, Zelensky is sure pouring everything he has into this insignificant town. Anyway... Uh, that is, I think, a summary of everything that's going on. Absolutely. I think the most important news is, in fact, this interview on the in the Economist, and I, we will, you know, we'll fo focus on that a little bit more. But can I just say, um, there's been an interview with the Economist. It, it was three people involved. Zelensky himself, he gave his own version of events, which is exactly the same as the one that he always gives. And then the two military leaders, uh, Zaluzhny, the overall commander-in-chief, and Skirsky, who is the commander of the Ukrainian army. And as I said, we'll come to that. But let's just deal first with the um, you know, overall situation. Another big missile attack. I mean, it's difficult to say exactly how big it is, but it looks big. It comes after a big drone attack. Of course, Zelensky will claim, as he always does, that 99% of the missiles were shot down. The other day, he claimed that all the drones that were launched at Kiev were shot down. I don't think anybody outside the Ukrainian government and some sections of the Western media believe these claims. I mean, the facts speak for themselves. We see energy um, an energy crisis across Ukraine. We see, you know, um, the railways not working, the metro in Kiev uh, not working. We see problems all over the entire energy system right across the country. And the impression we, we get is that with every missile attack, the problems are getting worse. So a couple of weeks ago, it was a third of the system was down. Um, that it was 40%, then before this missile attack, we were saying more than 50% of the system was out of order. And I suspect after this missile attack, it'll be more than that. And gradually, inexorably, we're moving towards a situation where we might not get a total collapse. I suspect there'll always be some power somewhere in Ukraine, but the system will be so degraded that it isn't functioning effectively anymore. And on the military front, the military situation, well, I think you've described it as very short, but, I mean, it's the two big battles at the moment, Bakhmut and Marinka. 
Marinka, they're saying 80% under Russian control. They also say that the supply routes to Marinka have been cut, that the, so the Ukrainian troops are presumably still fighting there, if these reports are to be believed, um, are not going to be able to keep fighting for very long because at some point they're going to run out of supplies. And in Bakhmut, the fighting continues. Um, again, a Russian official has talked about a pincer movement gradually tightening around the town. Um, the Russians have broken uh, through many of the defence lines in the eastern suburbs. They're apparently now fighting the street fighting going on in the town itself. But again, this vice is closing. And I read a report yesterday about the prediction being that the Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut, who are still there before very long, unless they're pulled out now, are going to find themselves in the same position as the Ukrainian troops found themselves in in Mariupol. In other words, totally cut off, not just from resupply and reinforcement, but from any possible retreat and facing the prospect of either death or captivity. So it's a bad situation in Bakhmut. And again, as you absolutely rightly say, always this talk about, you know, this is an insignificant place. There's far stronger defence lines further east. Why in that case hold on in Bakhmut in this way, why accept all these enormous losses that now everybody accepts Ukraine is suffering, trying to cling on to Bakhmut? Why constantly send reinforcements there when all that that does is that those reinforcements get chewed up? But let's turn to what I think is the most important news, because, as I said, all these military leaders, as I said, Zelensky, um, Zeluzhny, uh, Skirsky, the, the two military men, and also, by the way, the defence minister, Reznikov, gave interviews, well, the first three to The Economist, Reznikov to another British publication. Interesting, they all went for British publications. And if you read these things, it all looks like, on the one hand, on the surface, they, you, know, you know, they've had a triumphant autumn, they've won a whole load of victories, they've regained territory, but it doesn't take much reading below the surface to see that these people, at least the military people, are very worried about the situation they are in indeed. And so you have Zeluzhny. First of all, he says that he's got 700,000 men in uniform, but only 200,000 of those have combat training. That's exactly what Douglas McGregor said, by the way, a short time ago. Douglas McGregor said that the Ukrainian army, the actual part of it that it can fight, is down to 190,000 men. Zeluzhny has just confirmed it. Zeluzhny also confirms that he's running short of ammunition. He's running short of equipment. He says that he needs 300 tanks, five or 800 or so infantry fighting vehicles, uh, 500 fresh guns, that he can't carry out an offensive towards Melitopol with the two brigades, which is all that he's got in the area. He's talking about his army bleeding, and that was an actual word, I, word he used. 
He said that the Russian mobilization had been successful. He said straightforwardly it has been a success. He said that the Russian military is building up its strength, um, you know, purposefully and effectively. He says that the people who've been mobilized in Russia will undoubtedly fight. He said that the Russians can mobilize one and a half million men more if they need to. That's what he says. He also said that he expects a big Russian winter offensive. He thinks apparently that it will happen in February. Reznikov, the defense minister, who's a civilian, talks about January. Um, Zaluzny admits he doesn't know where this offensive might come from, but he seems to think the most likely place will be Belarus and that it will be focused towards Kiev, but he accepts it might be in all sorts of other places, including what he calls the southern direction. And then he says what I thought was the most interesting thing of all, which is that he says that, you know, he's still fighting, his forces are still fighting. It's not the moment yet to make to the Ukrainian soldiers the kind of address that General Mannerheim, the commander of the Finnish military, made to the Finnish troops in March 1940, after Finland was defeated by the Soviet Union in the Winter War. Now, you, if you read that speech by Mannerheim, the, the text is actually quite interesting because Mannerheim said that Finland had been overwhelmed by the armies of a great power and that they weren't able to keep up with the fact that the Russians had, you know, were outgunning them, were outnumbering them, all of those things. And Mannerheim also said, and this is back in March 1940, that Finland was unable to resist because it wasn't getting the help from the West that it had been promised. So one wonders what Zaluzhny exactly is thinking when he mentions these things. But the very fact that he's talking about Mannerheim's speech addressed to his uh, soldiers back in March 1940, conceding defeat to Russia, to the Soviet Union as it then was, well, that is, it seems to me, the first instance when a Ukrainian leader, and in this case we're talking about the commander of the Ukrainian military, is in effect admitting that it might eventually come to a situation where, he's, where he is forced to do the same as Mannerheim did and admit to the Ukrainian military that all their sacrifices have been for nothing and that Ukraine is losing the war or has lost the war. All right. Uh, I, I read the interview and uh, I, I agree with you. I, I think the simple way, the, the way that I, that I saw the interview was, was like this. Uh, we're at a fork in the road right now, Ukraine and the collective West. Either they go all in or it's over. And I think Zaluzny was, was saying, look, we're going to lose if we continue like this. So I need this list of, of stuff. 500 tax, 300 this, for I mean, he just puts a list down, right? So I need all these things. And I think he really does believe that if he gets all of these things, which is a lot. I mean, we're not talking about one or two planes. I mean, he wants a whole – he wants all of NATO pretty much. <laughs> I want all of NATO. But he actually believes that if he gets all of these things, he says it. I can win. I can get Melitopol. 
I can start firing on Crimea and, and we, can, we can get to the lines of February 23rd, he said. Fair enough. If I get all of these things, we have a chance to, to win. So he says that. But he says, the way we're going right now, we're not going to make it. Yes. We can win it if we get NATO involved, pretty much is what he's saying. But the way we're going right now, we're, we're not going to win. That, that, that's how I interpreted it. We're, we're, at, we're at this point in time where, where either you guys, the West, either you, you, you back up all your words with immense action, immense action, or you know, it's, it, it's not going to, to work out because Russia has 1.5 million men and they're going to go through Kiev and all these things. He says all of the different possibilities that, that, that could happen. Now, I think the most interesting part of this interview was to whom he gave the interview to, and that is The Economist, which is the gold standard, gold standard of neocon uh, publications. So it's to me, it's kind of like the neocons with Zaluzny and and Zelensky and everybody else, kind of saying, "Look, we uh, this is what we want as neocons, and this is what we're going to push for." Here we are on the Economist asking for it, and uh, as neocons, we always we always get what we want. I mean, that's the part that worries me is to whom yeah. he gave the interview to. Because you're, this is like this is the neocon saying this is this is the fork in the road and it's time for Europe and the collective West to to start uh, ramping things up because here's the situation. Yeah, this is exactly right. And in, by the way, can I just say it's again like the situation in 1965, if you like, in Vietnam, when the administration of that time, Lyndon Johnson's, was confronted with exactly the same warnings and you know they weren't called neocons in those days they were called hawks but they basically said look we've got to go all in or we're going to lose in vietnam and of course they got half a million men american men sent to vietnam shortly afterwards and zelusny and uh, the ukrainians are doing the same thing and this is a con- this is clearly a concerted lobbying effort. I mean, it is not a coincidence that all of these people, Zelensky, Zelushny, uh, um, um, um what's, his, what's the name of the other man, Reznikov, are all giving these interviews and saying these things. And you can also see something else, that they are trapped by their own propaganda of success, if you like. I mean, they've been telling everybody for weeks and months, we're winning the war. We, we've had the successful offensive in Kharkiv. We've had the successful offensive in Kherson. We've got the million-man army and all that kind of thing. And now, of course, they have to backtrack because the realities are now catching up on them. They have to accept that, in fact, things are not looking good. On the contrary, far from winning, they are actually losing. And this is clearly a concerted interview. It's, it's been agreed with The Economist, which, as you said correctly is very, very deep into neocon thinking. It's a neocon publication through and through. It's an attempt to get away from the propaganda of success, finally admit some of these realities, and tell Western policymakers, and to some extent the Western public, that we are now actually at the tipping point, that we're on the brink of losing the war in Ukraine, and the only way we can pull this together is by going all in. 
Now, if you go back to Vietnam, they did go all in. They sent in half a million troops. They carried out Operation Rolling Thunder, the, you know, the um, bombing of North Vietnam. They did all of those things, and they still lost. Now, why does anybody think that sending another 300 tanks, 500 guns, 800 infantry fighting vehicles, an already impossible list of things? I mean, perhaps you could pull them together, but if you start doing it on that kind of scale, you are going to deplete Western military stocks, which are already in a desperate position far more. You're going to run out of ammunition much more quickly. You're probably not going to have enough ammunition for the 500 guns or whatever it was that Zelushny is asking for. So you have to find some way of increasing ammunition production. You have to do all of those things. But, you know, when he talks like that, when Zelushny talks like that, I mean, that's clearly what they're going to try to do. They're now trying to get everybody in Washington, in London, in Brussels, uh, and to some extent in Berlin and Paris, to mobilise, to send everything NATO has got into Ukraine, except when you're up against an adversary that can effortlessly, apparently, call up one and a half million men and has, well, they've just delivered 200 T-90 tanks, apparently, to Donbass, the Russians can outmatch this escalation. But, of course, the risk is that it isn't just going to be weapon systems that people are going to send. There's going to be more and more demands to send troops, to send actual fighting soldiers to prevent Ukraine's defeat and to avert, prevent this collapse, this avert, avert this collapse that Zelensky is now talking about. And he's giving, if you like, the neocons and their backers a warning. He says, if you don't do this... I'm going to be forced to do what Mannerheim did way back in 1940 and tell my troops to surrender because we can't keep going by ourselves. And Mannerheim, back in March 1940, specifically said that one of the reasons why he was forced to do that was because the West, Britain, France in those days, had not acted on their promises and Zelensky is implicitly telling the West the same thing now. Yeah, I mean, the simple the simple summary to this is either Ukraine loses or we're going to get a massive escalation, which, as you said, may, may include, and most probably will include, NATO soldiers. Because even in that interview, Zeluzny said, we don't really need soldiers. Yes, I, I agree, we have 700,000 or whatever. We, okay, he, he talked about the amount of Ukraine soldiers, but only 200,000 are fighting. But I think he also alludes to the fact that, you know, look, we've we've got all of NATO too. If you guys just yes. go all in, then we've got all of the NATO forces as well that we can bring into this. So it's not a manpower issue for, for him. It's, it's a commitment issue. Is NATO going to pull the trigger and go to to the conflict with, with Russia? Are you guys ready to do it? That, that That's how I saw it. I also saw a couple of other things that, which I think are interesting. Uh, the fact that all of this is uh, is being coordinated by UK publication. Boris Johnson, a couple of days ago, was also talking about emptying out everything that the UK has pretty much and giving it to, to Ukraine. I think it just confirms how deep into this the UK really is. I would even say, I'll go out on a limb and say the UK is even more deep into this 
than, uh, or at least at an equal level with the United States. I'm, I'm not saying money. I'm not saying money put in all that. I'm saying commitment and desire to go to war with Russia. I think the UK is is top of the list. I mean, they want this conflict bad. I mean, Boris Johnson was foaming at the mouth to to pretty much just empty out all the all, all the stockpiles of of the UK military to go to go to Ukraine. So I think it's interesting that you have this UK thread in all of this. And I also think it's an interesting PR ploy to uh, to get Zeluzny to to give such an in-depth interview because to me it shows it hints at the fact that um, even though Elensky gave an interview, it was an interview that he gave with the Economist eight days ago, and they just now published it. And I think the neocons they understand that a lot of people in the collective West are getting kind of Elensky fatigue. They're getting sick of Elensky constantly asking for money and weapons. Money and weapons, and I think they're saying, you know, let's get some other guys, you know, in on this to start asking for for stuff because, and it is true, a lot of even even citizens that are in the collective West that are pro Ukraine are kind of getting sick of Elensky every time he goes on the uh, on there every every time he shows up on their screens he's asking for another ten billion. I mean, people are starting to to really just get tired of of seeing him, and so. You know, you start to put the commander of the forces in there to to deliver not the same message, but but a similar type of uh, type of message. Absolutely. I mean, and it's interesting, again, that Zeluzhny is being built up in this way, because I can't help but think, actually, that this is also not just an attempt to find somebody who's got more credibility in the West than, Zelu- uh, than Zelensky. But again, and we've talked about this before. It does look to me as if some people are starting to ask themselves whether if we have to drop Zelensky under the bus, you know, Zelensky's credibility is exhausted. Who do we go to? So we go to Zeluzhny, who does come across as a rather less, uh, shall we say, rambling and uh, eccentric figure than Zelensky is. I I think the fundamental point is this. There is a massive lobbying effort going on. We had Boris Johnson uh, making uh, that op-ed that you mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, basically saying that the British and the Americans, everybody must give everything, everything that Ukraine wants, they must be given it, even if that depletes all our arsenals, even if that puts us on a collision course with the Russians. There's no doubt at all. There's also hardliners all over the... I mean, Washington is riddled with these people who cannot contemplate the failure of their Ukrainian adventure. I mean, they're so invested in it that it would be a disaster for them personally if it failed, and it would be a disaster for them ideologically if it failed. The British absolutely, I think that... When you said that they're even more in than the U.S. is, that is absolutely correct. It's entirely my view. I think that in the U.S. there is much more pushback and debate and criticism of this policy than you will find in London. I, I'm in the U.S. You find ex-military people, ex-intelligence people who write for publications. You find articles appearing in places like Newsweek, in the New York Times, wherever which in all kinds of ways things are not going well. This isn't a war that's going uh, well 
there is a real debate in this, about this in the in the US. There are people who are critical of it in Congress, Republicans. Ron Paul, uh, Ron Paul writes, Rand Paul speaks, all of that kind of thing. You know, there is nothing like that in Britain. In Britain, the entire British establishment, which has been anti-Russian and anti-Putin for years, is united behind this Ukrainian policy. There isn't a single British newspaper where you'll find any dissent to this approach that's been taken at all. So, of course, they are also extremely alarmed by the developments of the military situation. They've organised these interviews. I'm, I think Reznikov's interview, which was not with The Economist, was also with a British publication. And, of course, they are now engaging in a massive lobbying effort on Ukraine's behalf in Washington and um, amongst the other NATO allies. And, of course there will be other people in the United States and wherever who are involved. I'm going to say something. I think that in the end, there's not going to be the political will in Washington just to cut Ukraine off. I think that going against the neocons is something that never happens in the US. But I also think that the more measured forces in the Pentagon, you know, the military people there, who must be worried, increasingly worried, about the depletion of the stocks. The more um, politically savvy people within the Democratic and indeed Republican parties who must be worried about the risk of a popular backlash if this thing gets completely out of control, they will push back to some extent and they will be able to limit the degree of commitment that is made. So we have the demand to send surface-to-air missiles to Ukraine, Patriot missile systems. So we limit it to just one, and we take it from National Guard stocks. We don't take it from actual army stocks. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that's the rumor that's circulating. So one battery, not, you know, fleets of batteries. We're going to have some more tanks sent, but it'll be tanks that, you know, we're able to get in Morocco, and artillery shells that we get in Sudan. And, of course, we'll find a couple more shells of our own to send to. But, again, nowhere near the amount that the Ukrainians are demanding. And I think over the next few weeks and months, we're going to see this, this battle between these two forces playing out. The neocons, the British, and I really do mean just the British, because, as I said, there are no dissenting voices about this here. The bureaucracy in NATO, Stoltenberg and his people, the bureaucracy in the EU, Ursula and her people, and NATO and the EU, by the way, the, the two bureaucracies have just united and issued a joint statement on Ukraine. They will all be busy. They will all be lobbying. They will all be pushing for more and more action taken on behalf of Ukraine. But there will be countervailing forces in Congress, in the Pentagon, among some European governments, uh, Schultz to some extent, maybe Maloney, perhaps a bit more, people like that, and they will be able to limit the extent to which this commitment is made. And in the end, the outcome is going to be the same. And it's going to be the same, whatever happens, even if you send troops there, even if you send all the package of weapon systems that are being talked about. Because victory 
against Russia on this battlefield is impossible. The more you commit, the more the Russians will escalate. And the more united in support of that escalation, Russians will be, because they will see a threat to themselves and they will respond accordingly. It's what Obama warned against all those years ago, back in 2016, when he said this is an area where there is escalatory dominance. And I think some people in the West understand that, especially in the Pentagon, but they're, of course, too afraid to come out and say it publicly. Yeah, we've almost come full circle uh, in this entire conflict because when this thing first started, the goal was to get NATO involved and uh, Zaluzhny and, you know, everyone else at these interviews, they pretty much now have come to come to the point where they're saying NATO has to get involved. Yeah. The collective West has to Absolutely. get involved or else we're going to lose. So, and, and even Adam Schiff, by the way, Adam Schiff gave an interview um, I think to, to ABC or NBC News, and he said, and there's Adam Schiff, he, he was hinting at the fact that the best way to move forward is to manage the war. It, they're not fully committed with sending 500,000 American troops to Ukraine. They're, they're, they're hedging their bets and saying, let's just try to manage this. Let's just manage this escalation, manage this conflict. Yeah. Well, I mean, how can you it's manage not an escalation? I mean, exactly, yeah. not enough. I mean, it doesn't work like that. But can I make a, a point? And this enough. is ex well, exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and you know, we come back though to the original premise upon which this war was constructed. The whole idea was going all the way back to that Rand Corporation report of I think it was 2019. You create all kinds of problems around Russia's periphery, and you drain Russian attention and weaken Russian resources. <laughs> that And that, of course, was what Austin and Blinken and all those people were saying just a few months ago. What's actually happening is that it's the West's resources that are being drained. It's the West's economies that are being weakened. And it is the West that is being sucked into a conflict where, of course, the risk it always faces now is that it will lose at any point. I mean, I, either they cut it off now and, you know, they will lose or they go in further and they will lose bigger. But you can see how once more a, ne a neocon plan has worked out badly for the West and for the United States instead of the Russians being, you know, distracted and weakened, which... Maybe in some ways they have, not in others. The people who are finding themselves trapped into a cycle of either defeat or escalation, endless escalation, in which they can't, in the end, keep up, are the Western powers. And you're starting to sense, I think, in Europe, increasingly, and I don't mean on, on, in the levels of the political class, but you're starting to sense that some people are beginning to get nervous and are looking for ways to jump off the right. I mean, Olaf Scholz has been giving these very interesting and completely <laughs> ridiculous, in my opinion, uh, um, articles about, you know, we, must, we mustn't end up in a Cold War. We must find a way back somehow. Macron does exactly the same. We've seen political crisis now in Slovakia where the government has fallen. We see all of this sort of thing. People are trying to find a way out out of a trap that they've let the neocons lead them into. 
But there it is. That's always what happens with the neocons. They always start strong and end catastrophically. And it's looking increasingly as if this conflict is going to be no different. Only the catastrophe is probably going to be bigger than with all the others. Yeah, you even had that, I think it was a, either a New York Times or Washington Post article or Wall Street Journal, I forgot which one, they're all the same, uh, which said that uh, the U.S. is, is telling the, the Europeans that they're going to have to start paying a lot more money to keep Ukraine afloat. Something like that. Did you catch that article? Absolutely, I did catch that article. And doesn't that tell you a great deal? Because like they, they say that, that they have to double, like instead of like one or two billion, you have to pay four billion a month or something like that. And that was the U.S. telling the Europeans, look, <laughs> you guys got to pony up more money. Yeah, and then in a few a few months, it'll be, you know, 8 billion a month and then 10 billion a month and then 20 billion a month. And that is the way this now is fated to go because that that's, that's the only way it can. And eventually, the policy collapses under its own weight, which is what happened in Vietnam, by the way. The, the fact was that the economic and military burdens of the conflict became so completely out of proportion to any conceivable gain, which could not be achieved anyway, that eventually, and this is the what actually happened with Vietnam, it was the more, shall we say, level-headed part of the US political military establishment which said enough. But in the meantime, until we get to that point, we're going to see enormous damage being done um, to the fabric of the West, to Europe. NATO, I suspect, is going to come under increasing strain. Europe is going to come in under increasing strain. I'm now starting to see the first articles appearing which admit that oil prices, energy prices, are going to start rising in 2023. So we have a long way to go before the penny finally drops and people draw the correct conclusion for what Zaluzny and the others are saying in these interviews, which is that victory in Ukraine is impossible, whatever Zaluzny says, because the resources required to achieve it are beyond any rational limit. Which is why you're getting a lot of articles, just to wrap up the video, a lot of articles over the past couple of weeks, which are resurfacing about regime change in Russia and tribunals. Yeah, they, absolutely. They're still holding on to this dream of some sort of regime change and some sort of tribunal where you're going to have Vladimir Putin sitting at The Hague. And it's going to be for all the world to see uh, the absolutely. UK is trading judges. In this, the Netherlands is putting this together. Borrell said that he's trying to put a tribunal together with the UN. They're, it's just hopium. It's just false hope that they're, they're yeah. trying to cling on to something to, it's, uh, it's, to, to exactly. keep this thing going. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. It's also something else, though, and that's it's an attempt to intimidate some people in Moscow. There was a very interesting article today in the Financial Times, which is furiously critical of uh, Putin's economic team, who are assumed to be liberals. And um, they're saying, you know, that the fact that these people have stuck with Putin, stuck with the Russian government, puts them in a deeply compromised position. 
And I noticed that there was a specific reference to Hjalmar Schacht. Hjalmar Schacht was Germany's central banker in the 1930s, um, who continued, who remained Germany's central banker um, after the party, the, you know, the German party that we all know came to power. And of course, he ended up as one of the defendants at Nuremberg. He was actually acquitted, but he was, he, he was actually a defender. He was actually a defendant, and he was politically... He was discredited. He was personally discredited. And the attempt clearly is being made to tell all of these people, Nabolina, Shuvalov, um, Gref, all, the, all of those people, look, if you continue to support Putin in this way, if you don't help us with our regime change operations, then you will end up in the same tribunal as he. Now, I don't think these people are going to pay any attention. I don't get the sense that they're intimidated by this sort of thing at all. But you can see what is being done. You can see that, you know, all this war crimes tribunal thing, it's partly intended, I think, to try to create tensions in Moscow. This isn't going to work. Nobody in Moscow looks at all worried about it. But it's not surprising that, you know, when you are seeing everything else fail, that, as you say, they turn to that. Well, that's their Hail Mary pass. That's the Hail Mary Absolutely. pass. That's yes, the indeed. that's the goal in the in the 80, 89th minute. You know, it's we're not going to get the regime change from outside in, but maybe we can get someone inside the Kremlin to get something started. That's why you're having the tribunals. That's why you have all of these uh, parliaments uh, labeling Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. The, the yeah. EU parliament, the Polish parliament. That's why you had the EU parliament yesterday say that the uh, Holodomor was uh, was an act of genocide. They passed that as well. All of these things in, in together are to are to intimidate and scare people. Even the ninth sanctions package focuses a lot on entities and individuals. They've come full circle there as well. Exactly. They started That's with that, entities that and individuals in the first package, and now they've come all the way back to to saying we're going to sanction you, your family, your kids, your grandkids, everybody. So they're they're looking for they're poking around in the dark, looking for someone, anybody that can yeah. somehow get some sort of palace coup going. Yes, which is which is goes all, as you rightly said goes all the way back to the Magnitsky Act of uh, 2013 or was it 2012, which was in fact all about sanctioning individuals and they've gone all the way back to that. They're now sanctioning individuals again, putting pressure on them, threatening people with war crimes tribunals, all that kind of thing for exactly the reason you say because ultimately, if they can't achieve that regime change in Moscow, two things: one. The whole object of the exercise, which was to achieve regime change in Moscow, will have failed. I mean, you know, what was this war all about then? And, of course, the second is, without regime change, they will lose the war. All right, we will uh, end it there, thedurand.locals.com. And we are also on Rockfin. And go to the Durand shop, 10% off, use the code, good day.